Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. It's not easy being a Democrat in the Missouri General Assembly, especially when Republicans outnumber you by a supermajority. But Representatives Lauren Arthur and John Carpenter are trying to make things better for their party and strategizing how to push their policy ideas forward. The two Kansas City area Democrats join us on another edition of Politically Speaking. So let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Reitens, Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor, and I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors, and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast, the only podcast about Missouri politics that will not be eclipsed by the eclipse next week. I guess that's possibly true, but that may not be. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio in St. Louis is... Colleague Joe Manis. And joining us from KCUR studio in beautiful Kansas City, Missouri, we have two special guests today. If you would, could you introduce yourself? I'm Representative Lauren Arthur from Kansas City. Hey, and Representative John Carpenter also from Casey Moe. Well, Both Democrats, correct? Correct. Proud Democrats. Proud Democrats. I, I'm really excited to have both of these lawmakers on um, for several reasons. Number one, I think it's a good thing for a St. Louis show like ourselves to make sure that we have people from the other side of the state. And the other is that I guess it's good to also have our competitors on because both of you have a podcast. And I guess sometimes it's better to crush your competition with with flattery and respect rather than with uh, with snide remarks to to, to imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Well, we're all about inclusion here. We're we're, we're, we're all about inclusion. Um, We'll get to that a little bit later. But as we do on all of our shows, we want to get to know our guests a little bit more. Um, So I guess I'll start with Representative Arthur first. If you could tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into politics, what your district is, give us a sense of of who you are and and why you're even a legislator in the first place. Well, I ask myself that question every day. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I represent District 18, which is the greatest district in the world. And it's actually the district where I grew up. So I had a lot of fun knocking doors and running into people that I went to first grade with uh, or played softball with. And I decided to run uh, for myriad reasons. But primarily, I I taught at a school in the urban core in Kansas City. And I was shocked that my students were coming to school without their basic needs being met. They would come to school and show up. They were hungry. They hadn't had dinner the night before. they, you know, had a, a terrible night's sleep, and then they would come, and we would expect them to achieve at high levels while also not having the funds to provide them with things like books. Um, so that really resonated and stuck with me, and I thought that there needs to be a more comprehensive problem-solving approach to um, 
the fact that children in Missouri's basic needs aren't being met. Um, and then on top of that, I looked at the makeup of the legislature and I saw that women were underrepresented and at the time young women were wholly unrepresented. So I was the only um, female elected official in her 20s when I got elected the, the first time. Um, and I thought I could offer a unique perspective and a, a different voice on, on the issues. Now, where exactly is your district so our listeners know? Um, for people familiar with Kansas City, it's in southwestern Clay County, so just across the river, north of downtown. And this is not at all confusing, but I represent north Kansas City and then parts of Kansas City north. <laughs> okay. That is extremely confusing, but <laughs> I, I also know that North Kansas City is a completely separate city from Kansas City proper, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? That's right. Yep, that's right. But so, both Kansas City and North Kansas City, everything's up to date there. Oh, well, that's that's great. That's also the, the name of, of, of yes, uh, Steve Kraske's <laughs> radio show up there. Yeah, well, that's a, yeah, well, that's a great song in Oklahoma. So. Absolutely. So, Representative Carpenter, if you could give your bio and just tell people why you got involved in politics. Yeah, you know, mine's very similar to Lauren's. Um, from the area here in the Kansas City North area, um, and I represent the 15th district, which is actually the, the world's greatest district. Lauren was a little confused about that, but we'll forgive her. Uh, so that's got all of the city of Gladstone and then uh, part of the Kansas City Northland. Um, and, you know, I was mostly uh, frustrated by what I was seeing. Uh, a lot of arguing and bickering in Jefferson City and not uh, a lot getting done that actually benefits people. Um, so I first got elected in 2012. Um, and yeah, you know, decided to run, uh, throw my hat in the ring. I've always been er interested in uh, public policy and um, public service. So um, was fortunate enough to get elected in 2012 and gotten reelected a couple of times since and really love the job. So I want to talk a little bit about kind of the status that you're in right now. Both of you entered the legislature when the Democrats were pretty deep in the minority. And they still are. And they still are. <laughs> um, and on the surface, that would not give either one of you much opportunity to affect public policy or the flow of legislation in the Missouri House. But one thing that I noticed this year is that the House Democrats seem to have more success at working behind the scenes and affecting major issues. It could be because the, the Speaker of the House, Todd Richardson, gives more autonomy and, and more ability for Democrats to influence the process. It could be just because you're better organized and more strategic and you've been able to be successful. That's my observation. I'd like to hear both of your thoughts of, of how both of you operate in this in this Missouri House the way the Democrats are right now. You know, I, I think it takes... Um you got to work on multiple levels, right? So on the one hand, uh, you've got to be willing to um, fight the good fight and to uh, actively um, defend your views and defend people in Missouri who need it. Um, because when you've got a supermajority in the legislature like we do in Missouri, um, and that kind of one-party rule, uh, they have a tendency, I think, to uh, play their you know, a little overplay their hand. And so we've seen that on a lot of issues in the Missouri legislature. And I think it takes uh, the minority party standing up for what they believe and, and being willing to speak out against it. So there's a lot of that uh, that goes on. 
And I think that's a necessary part. But then obviously, <clears throat> you know, you've got to you've got to do both. So you've also got to be willing to uh, make relationships with uh, Republican legislators and work behind the scenes to uh, get things done with them. So, you know, that, that's always been my view is there's no reason you have to sort of choose a lane. Uh, I think sometimes people uh, feel that way, that they either have to be the person who's throwing bombs or they have to be the person who's uh, uh, constantly working uh, with Republicans. I think there, you can do a healthy balance of both, and I think that's what it takes. Now, yeah, um, I agree. Yeah, go oh. ahead. I was just going to say I agree with that. And being in the super minority is as much fun as it sounds some days, but <laughs> it's important that we're there and offering that different opinion. Um, and I would say Republicans admit that they have too many Republicans at this point, and the balance has really gone out of whack. Um, and, and so I think if you're a Republican or a Democrat, y you should see that there's more need to move towards center, towards good public policy, as opposed to really pub partisan public policy. Um, and then beyond that, we we benefited this year because we had a lot of uh, new and young talent come in in that freshman class. Um, and I, I'm really proud to work with our Democratic colleagues who just came in um, this past cycle. I think they add a lot. They really energize the caucus. Um, and um, it, it's nice. It feels like a team and, and that we're all working towards the same goal. Um, and they're, they're just people that you like to work with. And, and so I think all of that um, and the ability to build relationships across the aisle and, and um, you know, influence people, not in a devious way, but just influence them to move them towards what is more common sense. Yeah, I covered, uh, I was in Jeff City for the final week of the session. And I know it was particularly emotional in the House on various issues, such as um, the, the workplace anti-discrimination bill, which basically will make it harder for people to sue for discrimination, um, and some other major bills that came up during that final week. And because the Democrats are so outnumbered, you're kind of almost like um, peripheral players. It depends how much they want to give, allow you to speak just for the heck of it before the vote is taken. It's sort of like the outcome is already... Um, settled going forward towards the next session which begins in january do you see things because the leadership's going to be the same do you think do you see things getting better getting worse are there particular issues that already you're seeing where there might be some uh bipartisan movement i'm just interested in your thoughts the thing that concerns me is that it's an election year and during election years, it seems like politics comes more into play than actually solving the problems in the state. Um, so you get a ton of abortion laws, you get a ton of gun laws, you get those divisive issues that that really rally a base. Um, so I, I worry just because of the nature of election years that it might get worse. Um, but in terms of you know what Republicans have been pushing, I, it's uh, it's not great right now. So. Yeah, it's hard for me to imagine it getting a lot worse, to be honest. You know, I'm, uh, I try to have eternal optimism in the job because uh, that's what it takes to, to hope that next year will be better than the year before. Um, so I always think it's possible. But, but yeah, for it to get worse, I, you know, uh, if you look back at, the, at what happened legislatively this year, 
between that discrimination bill, which makes it substantially easier for employers to get away with the kind of discrimination that was outlawed in this country decades ago. Uh, so I think it really takes us decades in the wrong direction. Uh, between that and all the cuts to services like uh, uh, at-home services for disabled and elderly, um, you know, it's a long list. You got right to work, which I think is going to further tilt the, the balance of power to the corporate world and away from working people. Um, you've got the abortion laws. It, it's a long list of things that, I, you know, we did this year. So it's hard for me to imagine uh, the 20, what it'll be, the 2018 uh, legislative session being a lot worse. Uh, so, you... so I am hopeful that, you know, uh, my Republican colleagues can sort of move past, you know, the hot button red meat controversial issues and actually work on issues like improving education and roads and bridges and things that hopefully we could find bipartisan uh, agreement on. I mean, it looks like the uh, right to work bill that the General Assembly passed and the governor signed last session is going to be headed, it's going to be put in limbo, so to speak, uh, because uh, labor appears to have more than enough signatures to force a referendum next November. My question is the fact that, let's say, by the time you get there in January, it's going to be clear if it's made the ballot. So, in other words, do you think that there may be um, tensions because of that? Other labor-related stuff brought up because of that? Yeah, I mean, that wouldn't surprise me. Although, to be honest, if anything, I think a lot of the tension will be within the Republican caucus you know from what i understand there's a lot of them who are upset that that uh that they passed the bill so early in session which has helped to allow for this moment to uh, you know gave gave organized labor more time to do the uh gathering of signatures and uh plus you know labor is an issue that somewhat divides republicans there are a handful of them who oppose these uh, uh these anti-worker laws so uh Will they come after labor again? Probably. I mean, they've been doing it for years. Um, now they've got the biggest supermajorities they've ever had, plus the governor's mansion. So uh, on issues like prevailing wage and others, I imagine they will uh, come back and try again. You know, one of the issues that concerns me is on unemployment benefits. They uh, are constantly trying to undermine uh, unemployment insurance for workers, which, of course, is for working people. It's for people who get laid off, you know, fired not for cause. Uh, uh, it's a really important uh, part of the social fabric in this country, I think. And, uh, yeah, I think there are a lot of issues like that that I'm watching out for. Now, how do you think you uh, – there's been talk that there might be another special session <coughs> because of the in-home care cuts. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so, but some others say, no, that's not going to happen. They may try to work out something next session. Uh, I'm just interested in what you're hearing from your constituents about the cuts uh, or what you think may happen in the next few weeks or months. Yeah, I, um, I've heard from a lot of constituents on this issue and people who are um, really burdened by the decision made in Jefferson City. I, I think it was both bad public policy and morally indefensible to veto um, what was a rare bipartisan solution to the problem. Um, it means that the cuts mean that more people are going to end up in the emergency room or in institutions, and ultimately Missourians are going to be the people footing that bill. And I've talked to those constituents who um, they're going to lose their in-home services or their people who, because of other legislation, have lost their subsidy for prescription drugs. And the burden 
on them and their families is really unimaginable and heartbreaking. And, um, you know, these are people who've paid their taxes throughout their lives. In many cases, they serve their country in various ways. And, uh, and they want to live with a little dignity. But I, it's, um, it's shameful that those are the people who were targeted um, before corporations or other interest groups. And um, so in terms of moving forward, I have recently started hearing the rumor of uh, a special session to address it or something during the veto session time um, to come together and work on the issue. But uh, I don't I feel like that that solution has already been delivered. And the fact that um, it has no, you know, no support among the Republican leadership of the party, including the governor, makes me nervous um, and and feel like maybe that that it's not going to be addressed. Well, that's actually a, a good segue to um, our first clip, which is from Representative Justin Offerman, who's not the governor, but he is the vice chairman of the House Budget Committee. Um, I know that several of your Democratic colleagues have talked about overriding um, what is known as HCB3, which, which I'm summarizing it here, would basically take a whole bunch of unused money from a bunch of, of boards and commissions in state government and use it to restore about 8,000 people to in-home and nursing home care. I, I just want to make sure I'm describing that accurately to either a guest or Joe, first of all. Yeah, that's correct. Okay. As far as I understand. So this is what Representative Alferman brought up about the prospects of overriding that bill when legislators come back for veto session. That is, in my opinion, um, as part of this discussion, ludicrous. And, and here's why. The governor has already said and stated that he hates this bill. He believes it's unconstitutional. And the bill itself, even if we did override it, it gives the governor the authority to make the transfer. The governor has already said he doesn't like the proposal and thinks it's unconstitutional. So in what universe would overriding the governor or doing another bill that was a fund sweep make sense? Because the governor simply won't make the transfer. So in essence, the Senate version of House Committee Bill 3 is, is a farce. It's never going to happen because Governor Greitens has, has indicated that it, the, the transfer will not go through. So any solution that includes a fund sweep, how the Senate did it, is not going to work. And I don't believe, even if we did get it passed, it's not going to do anything because the governor simply won't make the transfers. I know that that was were strong words by your colleagues, but it does seem like he has a point that simply overriding HCB3 does not really seem to be a, a practical solution to this problem. What's kind of your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, so I don't know. So let, let me stipulate that uh, as to our earlier conversation of working with pro- Republican members, uh, Representative Alferman is one of my very favorites. He's a great person uh, and I think does good work uh, down in Jefferson City. Um, but I think the reasoning of this plan can't work because the governor won't let it work isn't much reasoning, right? I mean, he's saying that we can't solve this issue, the issue being that 8,000 of our fellow Missourians are going to lose their in-home care, uh, many of whom will be forced out of their homes as a result, that we can't solve the issue because the governor refuses to play ball, that, e- that even if we were to override it, the governor would refuse to do it. Well, that's a choice. So, you know, 
political actors in Missouri are making a choice not to solve this issue. It's not that it can't be solved. Uh, we're talking about $13 million. There's about $13 million in cuts here. The idea that we can't solve it is, is to me, uh, false. I think we clearly can, and I think Republicans, whether they're in the General Assembly or whether we're talking about the governor, who is an elected politician, even if he doesn't want to admit it, is making a choice not to solve the issue. And um, I'm going to play a second clip from Representative Offerman because this was talking about the possibility of a special session. I, I think one thing that we need to make sure our listeners know is that for the legislators themselves to call themselves back into special session, you need around 149 or 150 senators and representatives. And he mentioned that that's not a likely scenario. But even if you did get legislators to take this issue up and come up with a new plan, this is one of the difficulties that Representative Offerman foresees. So in order for this bill to even have the effect that we want, we have to come up with a funding mechanism of how to get tens of millions of dollars um, to home and community-based services. So there lies another problem of, okay, if we do call ourselves back in, where are we going to find the revenue to restore these services with the current budget that we have? That's another huge problem that I don't think anyone's talking about. In, in addition to kind of responding to that, I'd, I'd like both of your opinions about whether the legislature should come back into session to, to deal with this. Because as you mentioned, this is affecting thousands of people. It's, it, it is going to result in losing critical health care for people. Um, what do you make of the representative's uh, comments, and do you think that this issue is worthy enough for le legislators to come back into special session for? Yeah, we should do whatever it takes to ensure that, you know, these 8,000 people or more won't suffer as a result of that inaction. Um, so I, I'm all for a special session if that's what it takes to fix and solve the problem. It is worth mentioning why we're facing a several hundred million dollar budget deficit in the first place. And and that, in my opinion, has a lot to do with the fact that Republicans have been in power for the past decade, and a lot of their decision-making involves tax cuts and, and special interest tax credits uh, to different groups. And that starts to add up. So, you know, it's $10 million in tax cuts here. It's $10 million in tax cuts here. And, uh, of course, I think it was Senate Bill 19 that was passed a few years ago. I believe you're right, yeah that um, it was expected to cost the state somewhere around $20 million and it ended up costing somewhere closer to $200 million. Yes. So, they, you know, everyone acts like this budget crisis just fell from the sky and there's no sort of ownership of the problem in the first place and certainly no, um, no sort of, you know, our neighbors to the west in Kansas have accepted the fact that it was uh, their decision-making that ultimately led to some of the problems that they saw in their state. Missouri hasn't gotten to that place where they acknowledge that, um, you know, tax cuts ultimately end up cutting services for senior citizens and, and people with disabilities. Um, so I, I, I'd like to see just an acknowledgement that, of that in the first place and not a continuation of the same failed policies. Yeah, well, and that's the only way we're going to fix the issue, right? The only way you're going to stem the tide is by acknowledging that when you pass these uh, special interest tax giveaways that they have an effect on, for example, uh, uh, in-home care programs. Um, and that doesn't seem to, to be in the discussion. I mean, we're, we're talking hundreds of millions, uh, north of a billion dollars every year uh, in 
tax cuts that have passed this uh, legislature over the past decade. Um, I mean, it, it adds up. So when we're talking about a $20 million shortfall here or $30 million here, you know, we cut higher ed this year by $70 million. Um, and basically the reasoning was, well, we have a $500 million budget shortfall and we've got to cut some fat and, you know, gee, we sure wish we didn't have to cut $70 million from higher education, from our four-year public universities and our community colleges. We agree that those are important, but we just have to do it. Well, we have to do it because of decisions that have been made and are continuing to be made. And, uh, you know, I, I just wish that our elected leaders cared as much about keeping disabled Missourians in their homes uh, as much as they do about handing out tax giveaways to the wealthy and to corporations. And if, and if they did, then we wouldn't be facing this kind of issue. And I'll say, I know some of our Democratic colleagues are looking into a review of tax credits and, and tax cuts. And, and obviously, it's easy when you're in the opposition to point the finger and say, fix it. But we're actually um, trying to be proactive and looking at areas where we can restore some of the revenue funding um, for the sake of the state. We're going to take a short break where I'm going to tell our listeners about the stories Joe and I are working on. We'll be back in 30 seconds. Be sure to read my story at stlpublicradio.org about how the majority of homicide victims in St. Louis are aged 29 years old or younger and what city leaders are planning to do to reduce those grim statistics. Also, be sure to check out Joe Manis' story about how labor unions in Missouri are trying to reverse right to work at the ballot. You can also subscribe to Politically Speaking by typing in Politically Speaking in the iTunes podcast search. Now back to the show. And we're back on Politically Speaking. It's a, it's a bi-state Politically Speaking here with Jason Rosenbaum, Joe Manis, and Representatives Lauren Arthur and John Carpenter, who are in Kansas City right now. And I wanted to talk about the relationship between legislators from St. Louis and Kansas City. What, what is the relationship like between the two, and, and what struggles and successes have you had recently? I mean, I've always found it to be fairly positive. Uh, you know, I, I think the interests are, are often in common between the two biggest cities uh, in the state, and uh, I think often you'll find members from St. Louis and Kansas City needing to sort of unite together to uh, defend our position against um, what is often a more rural-dominated uh, General Assembly. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, I, I think I've always found it to be a healthy working relationship. Right. And sometimes we are united uh, <laughs> in our opposition to what the, the rural lawmakers are doing. So a lot of times uh, Kansas City and St. Louis locally pass their own laws, and then uh, those laws eventually end up preempted by lawmakers in Jefferson City. And so I think uh, there is sort of that recognition of things. I know in Kansas City, things are going really well. Um, and it, it feels like the city is growing and thriving and doing a good job. Um, but often lawmakers in Jefferson City feel like they disagree with some of the more progressive policies in place in Kansas City. And we see that in St. Louis, too. Um, and there's, so there's a, a movement in Jefferson City to preempt. And, um, you know, I think there is a, a common interest in preserving the good things that are going well in Kansas City and St. Louis. And sometimes we're successful in defeating it and sometimes we're not. Um, 
But, you know, in terms of Kansas City, you're right that it is a very bipartisan delegation. uh, And where the interests of of Kansas City lie, we try to work together. Uh, And one of the things that succeeded in this past year was um, bonding from for UMKC Conservatory. Now it was vetoed by Governor Greitens, but that was really led by Republicans, though it was supported overwhelmingly by Democrats. And I think we got a lot of support from the St. Louis side as well. Now, That's true. Yeah, they did. Now, one of the big issues right now that I would that, that unite the two uh, cities' delegations is the fight over the local minimum wage hikes. Uh, the General Assembly and the governor. Uh, passed, signed a bill that um, basically does away with the city of St. Louis's wage hike to $10 an hour. Uh, that'll happen in just a few days. Um, I know that Kansas City has something similar coming up. So what's your sense of what can what the two urban areas might do to try to fight that, or can they? Just kind of your thoughts. Yeah. Well, one, one thing I would add to that, Joe, is um, – you know, I wish it was the entire delegation from Kansas City and from St. Louis uh, defending, you know, our local autonomy in that regard. It's really not. It, every Republican uh, from the Kansas City area and the St. Louis area voted with the majority in Jefferson City to take away the right of Kansas City and St. Louis to uh, set their own local minimum wage. So it's really been a, a Democratic uh, uh, versus Republican issue, which is unfortunate. I don't think it has to be. You know, I think minimum wage, you know, you do a poll any, anywhere in uh, the greater KC or greater St. Louis area, and, and you're going to find overwhelming support from uh, Democrats, independents, and a lot of Republicans. So I've, I've been a little disappointed uh, uh, to see what's, what's happened, which is, you know, a pretty massive overreach by politicians in Jefferson City who are constantly complaining that the federal government is trying to take away the state's rights and, you know, it's a big, bad federal government stepping in where they shouldn't, and then they turn around at the state level and do the exact same thing to cities within Missouri, uh, taking away the right of uh, the cities to set a higher minimum wage. And in St. Louis, I I, I just think it's um, the most egregious example of it that I've ever seen, um, and probably that the country's ever seen, where we're actually literally lowering the minimum wage for uh, more than 30,000 workers in St. Louis, people who are currently today, as we record, making $10 an hour, uh, who yesterday woke up, went to work, and made $10 an hour, and the day before, and for weeks, um, made $10 an hour, and come August 28th, because of decisions that uh, Republican politicians in Jefferson City made, a lot of them are going to see their paycheck go from $10 an hour to $7.70 an hour or to $7.80 an hour or $7.90 an hour, which is, you know, a more than 20% decrease in salary for people who are already struggling to get by. It's um, It's been really sad to watch. And I'd say it's totally counter to Missourians' values. We should consens- – there should be consensus agreement that if you're working full-time, if you're hardworking – uh, then you should be able to meet your basic necessities like shelter, food, lights, those kinds of things. And we heard from many, many minimum wage workers who um, weren't able to put food on the table because they weren't making enough money or who had to make difficult decisions between health care or, um, you know, making a car payment. And I, I just think that um, that doesn't really jive with what we as Missourians believe 
in terms of legislative action, we heard time and time again during the course of the debate that they would love to see a higher minimum wage, but it has to be a statewide minimum wage. Uh, and then we would respond, okay, great, are you going to sponsor that legislation next year, and can you commit that it will, that it will make it to the finish line? And then people started backing off of that, that comment. Um, ultimately, I think it's going to take a vote of Missourians, and I, I anticipate that that would, that, would, uh, that would succeed overwhelmingly, but I know there are a number of initiative petitions underway trying to get enough signatures so that will go on the ballot and that we'd raise our statewide minimum wage. So yeah. do you think that getting it on the ballot's the only option at this point looking forward? I mean, philosophical differences aside, it's a fact that the Republicans have such a majority they can block any legislative effort to try to restore the higher wage. And just to add a little bit of detail to that question, if a lot of money from labor unions are going to defeat right to work and labor unions were the main source of money to raise the minimum wage in 2006, is there going to be enough resources to get both on the ballot? That's a good question and a fair one. Um, I, I do think that the ballot initiative is probably the most likely avenue for success. Uh, I know there's one out there right now that would uh, increase the state minimum wage to $12 an hour by 2023, a uh, 75 cent increase over the next uh, you know, six or seven years to get us there. Um, and I fully support that. Uh, you know, I, I wish there was a solution within the state legislature. I will continue to work for one. I will continue to, you know, encourage my Republican colleagues to support a statewide increase in the minimum wage. Um, and in fact, we offered during the debate on the preemption bill earlier this year, we offered a bunch of amendments, uh, offering them any number they wanted uh, in terms of increasing the minimum wage, and they voted them all down. So we'll continue to try the uh, legislative route, but I do think it, it seems to make sense that the most likely route at this point is a... Uh, is a ballot initiative, um, and I think it would pass overwhelmingly. You know, Kansas City just uh, by a huge margin passed uh, a minimum wage increase to $15 an hour. Now, it won't go into effect most likely because of the state law, but, you know, if we got that kind of a margin on a $15 an hour minimum wage, which is a pretty big uh, increase, I think we can all agree, um, I think a, sort of a more scaled down $12 an hour uh, statewide initiative uh, would see similar results. I think it would pass pretty overwhelmingly. Uh, when it was last on the ballot in 2006, uh, it was well over 70%. I'd have to go back and look uh, exactly what it or Maybe it was around 70. I don't know. Who knows? But it was huge, uh, the margin. And um, so even if it wasn't as well financed uh, in 2018, I think that the issue itself is politically popular enough and uh I think you get it on the ballot, and I think it passes. That's what I think. I do have to ask this question, and people who listen to this show often know I bring this up a lot. Um, in 2013, there was a bill that basically preempted St. Louis and St. Louis County's foreclosure mediation ordinances. I noticed that most Democrats in the House and the Senate voted for that, including a lot of people from the Kansas City area. Representative Carpenter, I believe you were one of the people in the House to do that. I'm just curious why there's an emphasis on fighting to keep ordinances for minimum wage alive, but there wasn't much of an effort to keep those foreclosure mediation ordinances in St. Louis, St. Louis County alive. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a fair point. Uh, it, it was an issue that wasn't uh, debated as thoroughly as the issue we're talking about right now. So in terms of uh, 
could the state legislature have gone a different direction on that issue? I, you know, you, you make a fair point that that might be true. Um, my recollection of that at the time was that folks were saying that you had to have consistency on the mortgage process uh, and the foreclosure process. Uh, you know, obviously banks are operating in more than one venue. Um, that being said, yeah, I would be happy to revisit that issue if, uh, yeah, you know, if uh, folks feel like it should be. And it was kind of a moot point anyways. The ordinances were found unconstitutional, but I, I have brought it up many times because I followed that issue closely and Sure. You know, it's almost an obsession of mine, I'll admit it. Um, so <laughs> well, I, I, I just in general, I would agree with you. You know, I, I don't think the state needs to be uh, injecting itself into city ordinances. Um, you know, I think there are times when it's necessary, but uh, Jefferson City has overplayed its hand significantly over the past uh, decade plus in terms of uh, getting involved in city issues. So I just the... can't believe that politicians would be ideologically inconsistent sometimes. That's unimaginable hard to believe well, well well i mean it is impossible to believe i mean every politician is consistent a hundred percent of the time that's what <laughs> we found out i i do want to kind of shift a little bit into politics in the last few minutes that we have um i know that representative arthur is the treasurer of the missouri democratic party and while representative carpenter doesn't have an official role on the political side i know that you follow the the, the ebb and flow of politics carefully uh, I think there's been a lot of discussion about where the Missouri Democratic Party goes from here after the last election cycle. Where you got shellacked. And um, I'm interested <laughs> to hear both of your views on this because I do sense that there is a younger generation that is taking over the party. You have one of your former colleagues, Representative Stephen Weber, who's now the chairman. He's like, I don't know, 11, 12, 13 months older than I am. I'm, I'm 33, by the way. And it does seem like there is kind of a new approach and a new focus, but the question is, is that actually going to be beneficial for the party? So I'm interested to hear both of your perspectives on that. Yeah, well, I have complete confidence in our new leader, Stephen Weber. I think he's doing a great job in showing up to areas, showing up everywhere, uh, which hasn't been done for a long time and is really the first important step. Um, I, I think we have reason to um, feel encouraged, especially in light of the recent special election. I know we lost. I know people will say, you know, it doesn't, none of it matters because it ultimately um, that candidate is not going to have the opportunity to influence legislation in Jefferson City. But it is a really encouraging um, victory and, and sense of momentum and, and energy going forward and, and that candidate, Michaela Skelton, outperformed the top of the ticket by about 10 points. So I think you can look at that and say momentum is in our favor and, and heading our direction and that um, our job is to make sure that when that tide comes, um, that we're taking full advantage of it and having everything in place to make sure that we're picking up as many seats as possible. So are you assuming that there's going to be this uh, Democratic tide in 2018 because of what's happening in Washington? Or do you think some of the stuff that's happening in Jeff City is going to do that? And is that kind of dangerous to assume that when it's we've, we've got 15 months yet to go? You're right. It's a long ways off. And who knows what can happen in those 15 months? Hopefully not nuclear holocaust with <laughs> North yeah. Korea. Um, you know, I think it's hard to predict. But from my experience the past few years in the legislature, uh, Republicans always had someone to point to and say it, it's this person's fault. So at the state level, it was always 
Governor Nixon's fault, who's a Democrat. It's always the Democrats' fault. At the national level, they always had Obama to point to and say, uh, you know, it's this person's fault. Republicans own everything that's happening in the state and everything that's happening nationally. Um, and I think, you know, I think a lot of Missourians, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, are really disappointed in the direction um, and and just dysfunction that we've seen at both the state and national level. So there, there's no one to point to anymore. Um, and it's our responsibility to make them own it, but then also show what Democrats can offer and, and the fact that we're standing up for the people in the state um, who often don't have that voice. Yeah, I agree. You know, I, I, I think yeah. uh, I, I, uh, it's important that we, uh, at the state level and the national level, that the Democratic Party do everything it can to make itself uh, a competitive, viable party that appeals to a, a broad swath of voters. And I think that's happening in the state of Missouri right now uh, under um, some efforts that are underway. And I look forward to... 2018, uh, seeing how that plays out. That being said, I, I do think it's important. The the national uh, storyline is important. Um, you know, I, I think that what you see out of Washington D.C. is going to affect uh, local races in every state in the nation, um, because in my view, it's a disaster. Uh, I they're getting nothing done. They have no major legislative accomplishments, and we have a president in the United States who, on a daily basis, on an hourly basis demonstrates his deep, deep unfitness for the office. And uh, I do think that by the time 2018 rolls around and people got to head out to the polls, uh, that that's going to have a major effect. I, I did want to touch on that because we're taping this a day after President Trump made, I mean, I don't want to editorialize here, Joe, but it seems like it's almost an infamous press conference at this point um, regarding the the skirmishes in Char Charlottesville. Yeah, although I want I'm just playing devil's advocate here. I mean, often things like that everyone's like, "Oh my gosh." And then especially in in the case of Trump, a week later we're on to something else. I mean, I'm not trivializing it. I'm just making an observation because there's been a number of significant things that either Trump has said or done over the last 2 years that really haven't at the bottom line, within a week, they haven't affected really his standing that much. And that's what I was trying to get at with my question. Obviously, the president has said or done almost an endless amount of controversial things that in any other state that would probably hurt Republicans there. We live in a state where the president won by almost 20 percentage points. And the question I've been asking is this backlash going to be enough to propel Democrats if there's such a large base of support around the state for him. So I'd be interested in your both of your takes on that. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I agree. I'm not not sure the extent to which this really will change anything. Um, I can't imagine that the majority of Missourians think what happened uh, over the weekend was OK and and agree with any of the comments that Donald Trump made in response to it. I don't think people um, believe that Donald Trump represents their morals or, or their beliefs. Um, but, you know, I think it's interesting the Missouri GOP in a tweet, they felt comfortable and compelled to basically applaud the president during his, his press conference, which puts them on the same side as David Duke. Um, and that, that, yeah, no, that's you, totally correct. Right around the same time that. you had, you had the, uh, yeah, it's amazing. And by the way, most, uh, not most, a decent number of 
serious elected Republicans throughout the country condemned his remarks yesterday, and they and and they uh, they should have. I mean, it, you know, I what what its ultimate effect will be on, in November of 2018 at the polls is, as we're all agreeing here today, I think, is impossible to say. But what he did yesterday, regardless of that, was wrong. It was wrong. I mean, he the, we had the president of the United States go out and say that people who protest neo-Nazi rallies are just as bad as neo-Nazis and the KKK. I mean, it was, it was, it was appalling. Um, and regardless of uh, where it takes us politically, uh, it deserves condemnation and um, we deserve a new president. I just want to make this up. First of all, I want to actually read the actual tweet you were referring to. It says, America also has a president that isn't afraid to take on the hypocrisy and intimidation tactics of hashtag fake news. Way to go. Real Donald Trump. And then there was an emoji with the two hands going up in the shape of, I guess, a half rectangle. Um, And that was retweeting a tweet that Fox News said, the country is booming. The stock market is setting records. We have the highest levels of enthusiasm. This Fox News tweet doesn't mention the other things he said at the press conference. I'm not making an editorial judgment on that tweet. I'm just letting our listeners know what it is. And I will just make this final observation that maybe I could bounce off of both of you. I was actually in Columbia, Missouri 10 years ago when Nazis marched there. And I was part of a very large crowd. And it was a crowd that that where an element of it did try to get hostile and violent with the Nazis. There were seven or eight people arrested there. And I did not hear a single person in Missouri politics on either side condemn the counter-protesters there. I, I, I heard actually no reaction from Missouri's political uh, community. So it is kind of striking to compare that situation, which is— Obviously not the same situation. There are more neo-Nazis and white supremacists in Charlottesville than there were in Columbia 10 years ago. But there's a very similar idea where this group of essentially Nazis come to try to provoke a crowd, which has happened before in many instances. I I didn't really hear a lot of outcry about the counter-protesters then, and I'm sure you didn't either. Yeah, although 10 years, a lot of things have happened, and one could say that the climate has become more racially charged nationally. For without getting into the weeds, but the point is, it seems like tensions are higher on all sides right now uh, for various yeah, well, reasons. And the, and the president bears a lot of responsibility for that. So he ran an entire campaign on fanning those flames, and uh, you know, the people who went out to the rally yesterday uh, were, you know, attributing. They were saying, "Look, we're here. We've got our president now. You know, we're ascendant. We're finally our cause is." is uh, where it should be. So, I mean, these things are deeply connected, and uh, the president has a lot of responsibility. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I think he chose sides. I think he chose sides. Yeah, and I think it's coherent to say we should condemn violence where it takes place, but it's important to remember that the event was organized by white nationalists. And then on Friday, we saw masses carrying Nazi flags and torches, you know, chanting things that venerate a really evil leader and regime. They were supporting it, basically the elimination of entire groups 
of Americans based on race or religion or creed. And then on Saturday, we saw someone use ISIS tactics and drive a car into a crowd killing a young woman. So what the reaction to is not is obviously those events, but also Donald Trump's response to those events, which is basically to, um, you know, welcome white supremacists and Nazis into the commons while also telling you know, the groups targeted by hate groups that that their place in society is uh, not what they thought it was. Before we, like, do the whole where you are on Twitter thing, I do want you both to give as big of a plug as you can to your own show because I have listened to it before. I, I think that it is uh, – I'm trying to think of a, a funny way to describe it to it, our show without sounding very... like a jerk. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, but just tell us a little bit about your show because I think it is interesting that – there are legislators now who are, are, are using the podcast format to get their message out. Uh, give the listeners a sense of, of what you guys do. Well, first of all, it's the best show. Maybe that's what you're looking for. Tremendous. <laughs> Huge. It, it, it's uh, sp- uh, splendiferous. Splendiferous. <laughs> it's called Podgressive. You see what we did there? Um, and it started basically as a way to allow folks back home and inside peek at what's happening down in Jefferson City. I think we had the intention of letting most of our constituents receive updates via podcast. Um, And it's been interesting to see it grow. There are a lot of people in rural parts of the state um, who listen and feel more connected because maybe they don't have a Democrat representative and so they're not hearing another side of the story. Um, and it's a way to keep people informed and updated. Uh, we cover a local issue in Kansas City. We cover a few state issues. Um, and then we also talk national politics because we can't help ourselves. So <laughs> it's a way to stay informed and um, and. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I, you know, we enjoy doing it, and and we have we've had uh, folks uh, who have let us know they're listening from cities all across the state, including some that I've never heard of. So I, it's been it's been really cool, and I, we've got a cool uh, mashup pod coming up here in just a couple of weeks with a national uh, pod, and we'll put that out and hope everybody will tune in. Hopefully, one of the cities is Knob Noster. I'm sure we've got some Knob Noster. <laughs> I, I love the I love just saying Knob Noster as much as I can. Well, I just want to thank both of you for being on the show. I want to thank KCUR for for hosting you and for setting this all up. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. That's J M A N N I E S. You can follow Representative Arthur on Twitter at Rep Lauren Arthur. And I do not believe Representative Carpenter is on Twitter. It's been kind of a running gag in Missouri politics that you've decided <laughs> not to enter that um, cesspool of Alternate social media. Universe. Set, uh, social yeah. media. Is that is that true? It is true. You know, your words, cesspool and alternative universe, uh, reflect my views as of 2017. I could always change, but uh, don't indulge him. Now. He just likes people begging him to get on Twitter. <laughs> I am on Facebook, though. Yes. Just search. Facebook, uh, ser- yeah. Search his name yeah. on Facebook. I think yeah. I, I, I liked you a long time ago. So. I pre- Thank you. I like you, too. You're very welcome. We'll be back next time. <laughs> Until then, so long.
a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.